You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 9, this afternoon. The verses 51 through 56, to get a sense of the context of what our Lord was facing as he entered into the region of Samaria. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned to rebuke them, and they went to another village. And I'd ask you to turn a number of pages to Luke chapter 17. And we'll read together the verses 11 through 37. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, There he is or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, The day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? They asked. He replied, where there, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. We'll read together our text for this afternoon from Luke 17. We just read it together. Luke 17, the verses 11 through 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. 
They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return to praise, to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you praise God enough? Do you thank God enough? How often should you praise God? Do you do it often enough? Do do you praise God in the right way? Do you praise God at the right place? These are the sort of questions that you might have in your mind as you read our text this afternoon. As you wonder, well, what group do I belong to? Am I one of the nine who didn't return to praise God? Or am I like that one? Well, brothers and sisters, this text before us may raise those questions in our mind, but that is not the real issue at stake here. Our text is not about feeling guilty, about worship, about how much we do it. And it's not even ultimately about the need to show gratitude. Rather, what lies at the center of this text and what lies underneath it is something that may not be immediately obvious to us, but really this text is about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. It's mentioned right after our text. We read it together. It's mentioned numerous times around our text in Luke's account of the life of our Lord Jesus. It, the, the kingdom of God was the theme of Jesus' whole ministry, which he began in Nazareth when he proclaimed the kingdom of God, the healing of sick, giving sight to the blind and making the lame walk. And the kingdom of God is very closely related to the first words of our text, where it says, Now on his way to Jerusalem... Because Jerusalem was at the very center of the Lord's kingdom building work. Jerusalem was the city that would hail him as the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Outside Jerusalem, he would be crucified for the sins of his people. Outside Jerusalem as well, he would ascend into heaven to take his place at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven as king of the world. And now, on his way to Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus brings the incredible realities of the kingdom to bear on the lives of ten lepers. Ten wretches who were cast off to the very lowest and furthest reaches of society. Those ten wretches live and feel the blessings of a kingdom-restored life. 
What amazing grace. How does one respond to such a gift as this? So I proclaim to you the Word of God this afternoon under this theme. The kingdom of God bursts into the lives of those ten lepers. The kingdom of God bursts into the lives of the ten lepers. We'll see that the Lord Jesus brings the kingdom. And nine of those lepers taste it, but only one sees it. Only one sees it when the kingdom of God bursts into the lives of those ten lepers. So first then, the Lord Jesus brings the kingdom. Again, we've already noted that those first words there in our text, now on his way to Jerusalem, are very closely connected to the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, this wasn't the immediate earthly kingdom that the people were panting for, the political kingdom that they so much wanted. Rather, it was a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that was already present in the hearts and the lives of those who put their trust and who believed in the Lord Jesus and his message. So when Luke highlights at the beginning, the Lord Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's highlighting for us that the movement and the progression of the kingdom, the king is on his way and his kingdom is moving powerfully forward. But this journey for the king was not a triumphal procession. Well, it wasn't easy for our Lord Jesus. And on his way to Jerusalem, he meets with all sorts of opposition from Pharisees. We read earlier in chapter 9 about the opposition of the Samaritans, on whose border he now is. And so, under the burden of this opposition, on the way ultimately to his death, our Lord Jesus meets with a band of lepers outside the city. That's what it says there. Verse 12. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They were outside the village because that's where they belonged. You'll see from your NIV uh, text or your note in your NIV Bible that leprosy describes more than what we term leprosy today. It can refer to all sorts of contagious skin diseases. But the point is that these men, these lepers, these men with Contagious skin diseases were outcasts. The Mosaic Law, Leviticus 13, taught that the Israelites were to send all those with those sorts of diseases outside the camp because they were unclean. They were an affront to the holiness of God, to the holiness of His people. And these men weren't accepted by any society in those days. Of course not. They had a contagious disease. They had to be quarantined. And since... These weren't the days of isolated homes in nice, neat neighborhoods or nice, clean hospitals where these sorts of people could go. People lived on top of each other. The only way to go into quarantine was to go away. Away from society, away from your family, away from everyone you know, outside, cast away, exiled. Away from all other humans, except for all the other miserable wretches who are in the same condition that you are. Can you imagine that sort of life? You can't touch your wife. You can't hug your son. You can't go for coffee with your friends. You certainly can't go to church to worship the Lord with 
his people there. You're cast away, you're sent away, you're exiled. And all the while you suffer from a contagious, itchy, painful, miserable skin disease. Those ten men were wretches in every sense of the word. They were cut off from their family and friends and they weren't allowed at the temple. So there they were, outside the city. And as they see Jesus approach, they they meet him, we're told. Although, of course, because they're lepers, they have to stand at a distance. And so since they're far off, they have to cry out, and they cry out in one voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Have pity on us. That request would have been quite common for beggars of the time. Even today, if you went downtown Vancouver, you might hear the very same thing. Have pity on us is the universal cry of the wretch. But these lepers were no doubt looking for more from Jesus. Because they know they knew who he was. As, as he came, they were standing at a distance, yet they recognized him. And they knew his name, Jesus. And they even called him, him Master. These lepers know what Jesus is all about. They know that from the very beginning of his ministry, he's been healing the sick. He's been giving life to those who had none. These lepers aren't looking for a handout. They aren't looking for a few coins or a nice warm meal. These lepers are looking for what they long for the most. The healing of their bodies. Well, the Lord Jesus, the Master, the one who himself knows suffering, the one who came to seek and to save the lost, He hears the cry of the lepers, and then look what it says in verse 14. He sees them. He sees them. He looks at them. He opens himself to their miserable existence. In my experience, this is one of the hardest things to do when you're faced with a beggar. I've been in foreign countries where beggars are beggars. They're not hippies who just don't feel like working like unfortunately some people here but rather they're beggars because they don't have any hands or they don't have any arms they don't have any legs and they can't work the only thing they can do is ask for your pity the hardest thing to do when you're faced with one of those people is to look at them because as soon as you look at them you're forced in some way to deal with their misery while the Lord Jesus looks at these men. And then he commands them to go to the priests. And those lepers, they would have known immediately what that meant. Because you didn't go to the priest unless you were healed. And if you were healed, then he would declare you clean. So when the Lord Jesus tells them to go to the priests, and they would have understood that that meant they were going to be healed. What's remarkable is that without doing anything, simply the word of our Lord Jesus Christ to these men, and they all obey, they all go in obedience. They must have recognized something of his authority, having called him master, and then going in obedience when when he tells them to go. And then as they go, miraculously, we read, as they went, they were cleansed. And there it is. Boom. 
the kingdom of God bursts into the lives of those ten lepers. These ten outcasts experience the healing power of the king, and they taste something of the blessed life of the kingdom. Indeed, these were the men who were supposed to benefit from the kingdom, weren't they? They were the sick who were to be healed. They were those living on the outside that were to be brought inside. And then all of a sudden, in their own life, that healing and restoring power of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus was made a reality for them. In that instance, as the power of life and restoration seared through their body and the scabs and the rashes and the boils melted away, they became walking, talking, living examples of the kingdom of God and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring it. Wow. Wow. That's the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, where life is restored, where the sick are healed, where the captives are set free, where the blind see and the lame walk. And that's the kingdom of God that we are still a part of today. It's true that the physical expression of this of that kingdom, which was so evident in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not so present anymore. And it's true that we still suffer under the effects of sin. But the reality and the hope of the kingdom is as bright and clear today as it ever was. For the Lord Jesus declared that all who believe in Him will not only be restored on the last day, but they'll have eternal life. Because at the heart of the kingdom is the triumph over the power of sin. And that's the message that still goes out today. The removal and the defeat of the power of sin and the suffering and the sickness and the death that it causes. And the restoration of life with our Lord forever. That's the incredible hope that we too look forward to. Well, in the lives of those ten lepers, the future hope of the kingdom became a present reality. And it was administered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And when he administered it, nine of those lepers tasted that kingdom. Notice that all ten, all ten of those lepers are spoken about without distinction. They're spoken about with equality. Notice that we find out later that one of these men was actually a Samaritan, whom the Jews hated. But this group of lepers was so outcast, was so marginalized, was so sidelined that those distinctions fell away. There, there was no Jew or Samaritan. There were only miserable wretches. They were a unit. All ten cry out in one voice. Jesus sees them all without distinction. And all ten go on their way to the priest, which is surprising because Jews and Samaritans worshipped at different places. But yet, they all went together. And all ten are healed. All ten throughout the narrative are all together without distinction. But yet, nine of them are not grateful for their gift. Nine of them don't return to thank the Lord, to praise Him. 
But are the nine really not grateful, you ask? How do we know? Did they not respond to the Lord Jesus' command in faith? Did they not, too, go expecting to be healed? But consider that they don't return like the one, even though, like we said, this was a cohesive group. But even more, listen to what the Lord Jesus says when he takes direct note of their absence. He says, we're not ten healed. Where are the other nine? He's not concerned that these men might be lost or perhaps by mistake they went to the wrong place. But his point is that they are not where they're supposed to be at his feet. And they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, praising God. What's striking about these nine is that these are precisely the ones who should have been thankful. They were the sick for whom Jesus came as the healer. They were the outcasts who had been invited to the banquet of the king. They were the Lazaruses who hadn't received the good things in this life. They were the last who were supposed to be first. But yet, when the Lord Jesus heals them, they don't return thankfulness to him, and they don't praise God. So what's the problem here? What's the problem with these nine? Is the problem perhaps that they're Jewish? It may seem like that's precisely what Luke is saying when he points out that one of them, in verse 16, was a Samaritan. Singling out the one as a Samaritan identifies the others as Jews. And the Lord Jesus himself says as much in verse 18. He asks, was no one found to praise God except this foreigner? The word that he uses there for foreigner was the same word that was posted on the outside of the court of the Jews at the temple. No foreigners beyond this point. The reason, of course, was that the foreigners were not part of the true people of God. And so the Lord Jesus is asking, where are the people of God? Where are the ones that the Lord has chosen as his own? How come they're not praising God? And indeed, this has been a a theme of the whole ministry of the Lord Jesus, that it was the very people of God who had the covenant, who had the promises, who had so much that had rejected the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. And then this one, these nine, just like their brothers and sisters, reject the kingdom, even when that kingdom is made most clear in their own lives. So is the problem that they're Jewish. Should we be saying to ourselves, O Lord, I thank you that you have not made me like those ungrateful Jews? No. No, we shouldn't. Because the problem with those nine wasn't that they were Jewish. There wasn't something inherently wrong with the makeup of a Jewish person that made them less prone to thank God. But rather... The problem was that they were sinful people. And they showed the ungratefulness that's natural for sinful people. You see, we're all like that naturally. We're all like children with Santa Claus. You know how it goes every year? Canada Post gets flooded with all kinds of letters asking Santa Claus for long lists of things. And then after the children receive all sorts of nice things, then Canada Post is again flooded with all sorts of letters thanking Santa Claus for giving them all such nice things. 
No, that doesn't happen. Canada Post doesn't get flooded with thank you letters. And the thing about children and perhaps their ungratefulness is that they often express clearly what we adults hide in our own hearts. We are naturally ungrateful people. Do our hearts well up when we hear the proclamation of the kingdom of God? What's our reaction when we hear the message of the forgiveness of our sins? Oh boy, I hope he doesn't go on too long today. When's the last time that you or I have run and fallen and worshipped at the feet of our Lord Jesus? Out of thankfulness and praise. It's easy to look at those nine lepers and say, what an ungrateful bunch of wretches those guys are. But we should look at ourselves and say, what an ungrateful wretch am I? What's the problem, brothers and sisters? The problem is sin. Sin does not praise God. Sin doesn't thank God. Sin's perfectly happy going to the temple like those other nine, doing the right ritual sacrifices, being declared clean by the priests, and then going on with your life. Sin doesn't see the kingdom of God. Of course not. The kingdom of God is about the removal of sin. It's about freedom from sin. It's about defeating the power of sin in our lives, in this world. The kingdom of God is about taking you out of the kingdom of sin and bringing you into a new and a glorious and a wonderful kingdom. But the nine ungrateful lepers don't see it. They don't understand that their leprosy isn't a problem with their skin. It's a problem with their sin. Think about it. If there was no sin in this world, there would be no leprosy. Leprosy was unclean Because it bore evidence to the corruption of sin in this world. It was a constant reminder of the power of sin and the need for its ultimate removal. And so when the Lord Jesus shows them that He has the power to take away their leprosy, He means it as a sign that He can also take away their sin. The nine taste the kingdom, but they don't see it. They leave Jesus, who knows what they do, probably go to the temple, are integrated back into normal life, living the Jewish life just like all the people had before, but they reject this message of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they reject his kingdom. But one man, a foreigner, a Samaritan, he does see. And when he sees He believes. And when he believes, he praises God. The one sees it. You notice that in contrast to those other nine, one of them is compelled to return to the Lord Jesus, praising God, as we read in verse 15. So the question that immediately pops up is, well, we know what was wrong with those nine, and what we must admit even lives in our own hearts. But why does this one return when the other nine don't? Is it because he's a Samaritan? Well, that can hardly be. We read in chapter 9 about how the Samaritans were hostile to Jesus' message. Was it because he was a better person than the others? Well, 
We're given no evidence of that. Was, did he maybe have a personality that made him more likely to thank people when they do nice things for him? The reason I ask these questions is that there are reasons that many of us hold in our heads when we consider the Lord's saving work. And even though we might not admit it, sometimes we think that there must have been something inherent in us that sort of helped us along that path to belief, that helped us to see the kingdom. Our our upbringing, frequency of attending church, being involved in the right activities, staying away from drugs when we were younger. But we need, brothers and sisters, to look at what actually happens in this text and get rid of any inherent, any ideas of any inherent goodness in that leper or in us. Because he was a wretch, just like everyone else. So, why did he return to give thanks? Well, the key is in verse 15. It says, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back. He saw. But it wasn't as if he had better eyesight than the others, but rather he saw. That is, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes, opened his mind, and made him able to see what was really going on here. And this is even more clear when we see his reaction, because he sees and then he goes. Once he sees, once he comprehends the incredible reality of what has actually happened, he returns. And he returns to Jesus. Well, why to Jesus? Why not to the temple like he had told him? Well, because now he sees. Now he truly understands what's really happening here. That is, now he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19 of our text quite literally says, your faith has saved you. Now again, it's not like he had some sort of faith that was better than other types of faith, but rather he was saved because he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, he sees, he understands, he believes that this same Jesus who has healed him and the other nine is the Messiah of God. He is the true Son of God. He's the King who's establishing His kingdom in this world. A kingdom where the power of sin will be destroyed. Where there will be no sickness. Where there will be no leprosy. No blindness. No death. Those are all the results of sin. And this King has come to deal powerfully with that problem. Brothers and sisters, that's what the kingdom of God is all about. It's about the removal of sin and a life of righteousness, peace, and joy with the Lord. The leper couldn't have understand how, couldn't have understood how it was all going to work out, but we do. We know that Jesus went all the way to Jerusalem. And there he gave up his life as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. He did that on Friday. And then on Sunday, he rose from the dead victorious over the power of death. He conquered sin for us. And He continues to do that today. Establishing His kingdom in our hearts. And sanctifying us and purifying us. Well, when the leper recognizes the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus, he does what's fitting when you see, when you understand, when you believe what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do. 
He praises God. And you can just imagine what would be running through his mind, the same things that King David said when he wrote Psalm 103. What would he say? Praise the Lord, O my soul, because that fulfills the law of Moses. No, no, that's not what he's saying. Maybe that's what the other nine were singing. Praise the Lord, O my soul, because that's what everybody else is doing. No, even though praising God is the reaction of everyone when they meet the Lord Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke. Praise the Lord, O my soul, because otherwise I won't get saved. Is that what this is all about? You better praise God or else you're in trouble, just like those other nine. Is there a moralistic lesson here? That you really better praise God, and if you're not, you better start feeling guilty about it and do something. No. The point isn't that your praise saves you, like some kind of good work. So what is the point? Well, what does David say? Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who heals all your diseases forgives your sins, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. David makes clear that you praise God because of who He is and what He's done. This isn't a lesson on the need to show gratitude, ultimately. This is a lesson on who Jesus is. He's the King. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord who forgives your sins who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion. That's what the other that's what the one saw that the other nine didn't. And that's why when he sees, he goes. And that's why when he goes, he falls at the feet of the Lord Jesus and he worships. Brothers and sisters, Luke didn't place his account here so that I could scold you for your lack of praise and so that you could feel bad about it and tell yourself to praise God more. That's not how it works. That doesn't work. Rather, fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Look at who He is. Believe in what He has done. That he suffered and died and has risen to defeat sin and redeem your life. And he's now in heaven establishing his kingdom in your heart. And in the hearts of those around you and all over the world. And when you see who he is and what he's doing, what can you do but praise him? What can you do but but thank him? Fall at his feet and worship him. Worthy is King Jesus, the King of kings, the Lamb who was slain. Go to him and say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sight that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web 
at www.langleycanrc.org.